God, it would be easy to make this one more hour of our week, one more thing we do, one more thing we check off of our to-do list. And if we do, we'll walk away the same as when we came in. And God, what we desperately need in this place is perspective. We need a better understanding of why we're here, of who you are. God, for those of us who struggle with faith, with, with sort of the ebb and flow of believing in you and then having moments where we don't, God, we, we need a deep breath from that today. So would you speak into our lives and we'll stagger away with something that gives us new hope, a new understanding of who you are in your son's name. Amen. So I, I, I want to start a little bit personal this morning. I, um, I told you I had a crazy week. Um, that's sort of an understatement in my mind. Um, I had a, a, just a, one of those weeks where you lose perspective. And in the evenings, I would have some time to work on my sermons this week. And by that time, I was just sleep-deprived and exhausted. And I would write something that night and think that's really good. And the next night, look at it and go, what in the world is that? Um, and every night, I got this sort of a deep breath when I would work on this sermon this week. Um, we're a part in the story, and if you're visiting with us, we're going through the entire story of history. Um, it's going to take quite a long time. We started last October, and uh, we're about three quarters of the way through, and we're to what I would consider to be the most important week in history. Um, this is the week that Jesus Christ, who, who God sent to say, I'm changing the rules, um, everything's changing a little bit. Jesus lived, created these incredible miracles. Even people who didn't believe he was God realized that he was different um, and that he changed history. And at the, at the beginning of the, the, this week that we're going to talk about today, Jesus made a decision. And some people said, how can anybody take your life from you? And he said, no, nobody could take my life from me. I give it. I give my life. And that began a week of life change. Um, in, in history, and in the, the people who followed Jesus at the time. And as I was preparing for that this week and thinking through that, I was realizing the weight of this, this sermon and how we've confused this message and how we've messed up this story and how there's so much confusion around it. And as I've continued to, to kind of push through it this week, I've realized that this is what gives me energy. It really is. This, is, this story, this week in history, is what gives me energy. Now, next week... Please come back next week, because next week is actually the resurrection of Jesus. This week is the crucifixion of Jesus. And the resurrection is the good news of the story. But the crucifixion is what changes everything for us. And, and I was thinking this morning um, and last night, as I was kind of finishing this whole thing up, that this is why I preach. This week is why I preach. Check out this next slide. I love this, um, this piece of scripture. You got it there, Tanya? Is it stuck? Oh, okay. This piece, this piece of scripture um, from John chapter 20 um, is, is completely life-changing. And if, you're, if you teach um, Sunday school or upstairs with the kids, if you ever get a chance to preach or teach somewhere, you'll understand the power of this. John says this, Jesus did many other miracles and signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not recorded in this book. Basically what he's saying is, we're not, we're not recording everything that Jesus did that was miraculous, amazing, incredible. Um, but listen to this. But these are written 
that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. This is why I preach. That maybe something that can be said today would lead you to life. Lead me to life. And when John used the word life, he didn't just mean eternal life. We often think that church is more about death than it is about life, you know? It's about saving us from death, and it is. And in fact, that's a little bit about what John meant. But he also used a word, as he used this word life, that had a double meaning, and it meant this life different. See, part of the reason I preach is not just to save you from death, it's to save you from life. (laughs) You know? And and that's the amazing thing. If, If what I did and what we do here at church was just about heaven then I would just go around to nursing homes and hospitals and preach. But what we do is not just about saving eternity, saving you for eternity. Of course that's what we want. But what we do today and what Jesus did was he brought a new way to do life. And with it comes a peace and a joy and a hope that you can't get anywhere else. This week in history is why I preach. And I'm hoping that you listen today. It starts with Jesus um, borrowing something. And, and I, I want to just kind of get this observation to you this morning. I, I, I figured this out this week and just kind of writing things down. It's kind of a weird observation, but you might find it as interesting as I do. That Jesus didn't really own anything, you know? There's never a piece of scripture that says, and then when Jesus got to his condo, he jumped on his Honda Shadow and he drove it to, you know, there's nothing about Jesus' stuff. He, he borrowed everything. In fact, Jesus borrowed a home with Mary and Martha to teach in. He borrowed a lunch from a kid to feed 5,000 people. He, he, borrowed, he even borrowed a grave. At the end of this week, he would die on a cross. He didn't own his own grave. And at that point in history, it was important to own your own grave. He didn't own his own grave. He had to borrow someone's grave. He didn't own anything. The only thing that we know that Jesus actually owned and had was a cloak, a, a, a kind of a, a garment that he wore that was seamless. And that would be given and, and, and kind of played a game for by the Roman soldiers. And he wouldn't even have that by the time he died. Jesus didn't own anything. And I think this is huge for you and me today. Because you know what, part of the reason I work so much this week and part of the reason you work so much this week is because we believe that the more we own, the better off we'll be. I believe part of the reason we don't read anything about what Jesus owned, I believe part of the reason he chose to live a life where he didn't own anything was so that he could let you and I know and all the people that were walking around following him know that you can have everything and own nothing. You don't believe that. <laughs> Many of us just don't believe that. We don't. Yeah, I know what you mean, John. We don't have to be rich. We don't have to. No, I mean, Jesus owned nothing. He borrowed a boat to preach in. The dude had nothing. And he owned the world. This is an amazing story. This man, just the way he lived his life, changed the world. And, and I want you to know today that as you read through this, that you're going to see, um, you're going to get a, a glimpse into why Jesus was crucified, why he was killed. And part of the reason Jesus was crucified, in fact, I would consider to be the, the biggest reason Jesus would die on the cross at the end of this week in history, is that he changed the rules. And anybody who begins to change the rules in the world, anybody who sins to live differently or to, to, to set forth a, a new set of rules, makes rule makers really nervous. <laughs> 
In fact, they got so nervous that they killed Jesus. And it started this way. Luke chapter 19, verse 28. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. Look at this. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany. Now, I know when you read these names, you think Bethpage and Bethany, what weird things, and the Mount of Olives and all these weird things. I, I, you, you may not, they may not relate to you. I've actually been to Israel, and I've seen some of these places, and it's cool. They still don't relate to me that much. They're weird names. We don't hear... But what the importance of this, every time you see somebody, one of these names, is that this is a real life, tangible, physical place. The writer wants the people that he's writing to to know that this is where it happened. I'm not making this up. This is not a fairy tale. This is real life, tangible place. And he says Beth Page and Bethany. We might say Martinsville and Mooresville, you know? These are, and, and if somebody starts to tell you a story and they say, oh, this guy was walking through a Walmart somewhere. And you go, all right, this is a story. If somebody says, this guy was at Martinsville at 3 o'clock on a Thursday, you listen differently. It's a different kind of story. And that's what you're hearing here. He says, as he approached Bethpage and Bethany, and his his readers in the early early times would have have had an immediate picture of that, the hill called the Mount Olives, he sent two disciples saying to them, he said things like this all the time, and the disciples just started getting to the point where they're like, all right, whatever. I'll just do what you say. But there were some strange things. He says, go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there. Now, at some point, these disciples probably going, finally, something Jesus owns. He's got a colt tied up in a village somewhere. That's weird, but at least it's something he owns. Now, listen to this. He says this, which no one has ever ridden. (laughs) Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why you're untying untying the colt, tell them, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked, hey, its owners? Now, if you're the disciples, you're going, now, I assume Jesus owned this colt. No, Jesus is going to borrow this colt because why? He didn't really need to own anything. He's just borrowing this thing. He doesn't need it. He's not going to take it and do what we do with our vehicles pull it up in the driveway so everybody can see it and then pretend we're cleaning it, you know, so that it gets shinier and shinier and as people come by, they know that's our car. Jesus doesn't need that in his life. He says, I I just need a colt for the day, so go borrow this one. And if somebody asks you, why are you untying my colt, just say, the Lord needs it. Now, they must have said it with a certain kind of an authority because there weren't any questions asked. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked, why are you untying my colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. And they brought it to Jesus. They threw their cloaks on the colt, and they put Jesus on it. It's a weird scene, isn't it? Now, the picture of this colt, and when I was actually in Jerusalem, um, the, uh, the tour guide pointed out a colt um, that was close and said, that, you know, this is the story of Jesus. And in a town like this, that's a colt in Jerusalem. We're hoping you get a little picture of it. And I was like... That's not a horse. That's a dog. Like I've seen dogs in America bigger than that. And I actually said, "Is that a? Is that like a, a real colt? Is, is there something wrong with that colt? No. This is the way they look here. I'm telling you, this is the scrawniest, skinniest looking thing. I feel like I would have to put this thing on my back. Now, I wouldn't want to get on this thing. This is a funny scene." You know, the kings in this time, the royalty in this time, the rich people in this time, when they wanted to ride into a city and make an appearance, they would get the strongest, boldest, meanest looking horse they could find with the big rippling muscles. You know how that looks. 
They would get as high as they could on it. They would raise up their chins. They would hold their swords high, and they would walk into a city, and everybody would go, oh, Jesus changed the rules. I love this. You need to see this. This is the way the week of Jesus' crucifixion started. He didn't get a big horse. He didn't get a big sword. He got an ugly little almost dog-looking thing. His feet are dragging on this colt. My picture is he's actually helping the colt, Fred Flintstone style, pushing off the ground, helping this colt through the city of Jerusalem. The disciples go, well, we should do something. Jesus is riding bareback on this dog. Let's do something. So they put their cloaks over the the colt so at least Jesus has something to sit on so they got these ugly tattered coats hanging off of this tiny little colt who is through the city and it is a funny scene and people start to go look there is the next king of the Jews and people go where behind the guy on the dog (laughs) behind that that clown looking thing there no that's him and with it, 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 it captured the hearts, not of the rich people, because the rich people laugh. Not of the politicians, because the politicians are used to the big strong horses, and they would look down and probably just look right past it, not even look at it. It captured the hearts, the minds, the imagination. It touched the people who were most oppressed. It touched the people who have colts like that tied up in their own backyards. It touched the people who Jesus said just a short time before, I've come for you. Those of you who thought that the world was about gathering your riches, those of you who thought that being close to God meant that you were being good, those of you who thought that God was on the side of the rich, of the powerful, of the smart, of the pretty, of the good, of the religious, Jesus stood on a hill and he said, God is on your side. Those of you who are broken, those of you who are messed up, those of you who are addicted, those of you who can't quite stop, those of you who just aren't quite right, who are shunned by society, I'm here because God is on your side. He rides into the last week on a dilapidated old donkey to show the world that they've got it backwards, that the last shall be first. And he rides through the city. And i got to think it was confusing. If you've ever been to a church service on Palm Sunday, you know, if we, were the, if we were like a lot of churches, I'd have matched this sermon up with Easter, you know, but here it is June and we're doing Palm Sunday. Um, welcome to new life. Um, but uh, it, 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 if you go to a church on Palm Sunday uh, before Easter, they do the palm branches. Have you ever seen this with the kids? They do these palm branches, um, and they, they raise them up. Usually, our, you know, the kids nowadays, they don't know what they're doing. They're just waving a branch. At this point, they were waving branches, and they were saying, do you remember what they were saying? Hosanna. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna. And they're waving these palm branches. Now, when they first saw the donkey, they didn't know who it was. They didn't know this colt. They didn't know who it was. They didn't know what was going on. And as he goes into Jerusalem... A buzz begins, and those who were oppressed, those who were hurting, those who were far from God, those who thought they were at the bottom of the heap, begin to gather the streets. They begin to throw their own coats in front of the, the whatever the colt thing is. They've been, they raise up their palm leaves because it's the only thing they can find. And the scene scares to death the rich. It really scares and complicates the story for the religious leaders. 
The people who are living high on the hog, the people who make up the rules, who say, you know what God really wants? This is the kind of rules they were making. You know what God really wants? God wants you to give all, half of your money to me. That's what God wants. And these people who were supposed to be going to a priest to, to go between them and God will go, well, that's what God wants. <laughs> and Jesus goes, this is, this is messed up. In fact, you know what Jesus did next? During this week of riding in Jerusalem and all this time, one of the stops that Jesus makes is to the temple. I love this. This is during the last week of Jesus' life on earth. He knows he's going to die. He's telling his disciples, I'm not going to be with you forever. When he eats with them, he starts to talk to them about his death. They don't understand. They don't get it. Jesus knows that this is his last week on earth. And one of the stops he makes, and I just want to ask you today, if this was your last week on earth, you knew that on Friday night, today's Sunday, on Friday night, this coming week, you're done. Man, it got quiet in here, didn't it? On Friday night this week, all of your influence, all of the things you've done in your life will be over. What would you do? Where would you go between now and Friday? A golf course? <laughs> I don't know if it was true. I, I'm a, I love golf, but is that really where I want to do with my last week? I, Jesus prioritizes. He doesn't make a list, but he be prioritizes. And one of the priorities he makes is to go to the church to the temple. He goes to the temple, and I'm not sure why he goes. I, I, I think probably he was going to worship. He was going to kind of say goodbye to the temple. He was going to probably go pray over the temple. Prayer was a big part of Jesus' life. But he gets to the temple, and he sees this group of people in front of the temple and around and inside the temple, and they're selling junk, like, you know, Oriental Trading Company stuff just everywhere. They're selling it to people all over the place, and they've messed up church. They've made it about money. They've made it about religion. They've made it about people getting in and people getting out. They've, the place that the, the marketing was set up was in a, a place where the Gentiles, the people who were far from God at the time, could come and worship. And they were, it was so full that Jesus saw that nobody could come and worship there. And Jesus got so mad. It's one of the, the best scenes in the Bible as far as I'm concerned. Jesus throws down. I mean, he just, Arnold Schwarzenegger's the place. He starts kicking over tables. He calls them brood of vipers, big fat snakes, basically, is what he's saying. He starts kicking over the tables, and he starts throwing things apart. And he begins to say, you have got this messed up. You have messed up the point of the house of God. It's one of the stops he makes. And as he begins this most important week, he changes the rules. He takes his last week to change the rules around him. He's got this huge following, and he changes the rules about leadership. He does that really easily. He goes into the temple, and he starts all the leaders who are selling stuff and have the wrong priorities. He just starts turning over their tables. I was thinking this morning, you know, I'm, I'm considered a leader here at church because I preach. Um, I'm considered a leader in my business because I own the company. I'm considered a leader at home um, because I'm dad, and I have a louder voice than anybody else in the house, except for the dog. But the truth is, if Jesus were to come into my life right now, he might be overturning my tables. Because <laughs> I've lost perspective in a lot of ways, and maybe you have too. Jesus walked into this temple where the leaders, the religious leaders were, and he said, you guys have it backwards. And he didn't say, you know what we need to do? We need to go up to room 301 and have a meeting about this. <laughs> 
and, and talk through what you're doing. No, he, he went, no. Boom, kicked over that table. That's it. And, and I, I prayed this morning, and I'm praying for you too. Those of you who are leaders, whether it's in the church, whether it's at home, whether it's in your business, or whatever you do in your life, if you're a leader, if, you, if people are following you, if you're a parent, by the way, you're a leader, what would Jesus kick over in your life? Where would he say, this has to stop? You have missed the boat. Being a parent is not about you being in charge, making yourself feel tough. Being a leader is about taking people to the next step. And Jesus says, you, this has to stop. And he changes the rules, and that makes the religious re- leaders really mad. He changes the rules about relationships. He continues to go into people's lives, and he says, I, I know you think you're a great person because you love your family. But truthfully, it's easy to love your family. You've heard it was said you should love your brother. I'm telling you, you need to love your enemy. They're like, no, Jesus, I know what you said, but you don't really mean that because you don't know who my enemy is. My enemy is the Roman government, and they will come in, cut my baby's heads off in a heartbeat. You want me to love that guy? Jesus goes, yeah. In fact, when they tell you to carry something, even though you don't really, you shouldn't have to, you carry it twice as far as they tell you. That makes people really mad. In fact, Jesus says, if you, if you want the kind of life that has peace and hope and joy in it, you want the things that you're looking for, you're, you're going to live differently. You live by a new set of rules. And as he changed these rules, the world around him, the people who followed him, began to actually follow them. And this is what scared the Roman government, the, the government, uh, government most. This is what scared the religious leaders the most. Because if it's just one lunatic, it's okay, isn't it? I remember when I was in high school, the David Koresh thing was going on in Waco. And if you don't, if you're too young to remember that, or if you're too old to remember that, um, <laughs> the David Koresh thing um, was in Waco, Texas, and this guy believed he was Jesus. He got a whole bunch of, you know, a few people around him, and they got in this compound, and the government sat outside and said, you can't do this, and they ended up dying, and it was, a, David Koresh was just a, a lunatic, and there were a few people following him, and it wasn't scary to me. Maybe it's because I was young, but I was watching it on TV. It didn't affect my life. It really was, it was just a little group of people, and that's kind of the way we treat lunatics, but when there is a following, when things actually begin to change, when a group of people actually begin to live the way this lunatic is talking, then it's scary, and that's what happened. People started following Jesus. They started living the way he lived. They started actually doing the things he was asking them to do. Now, here's what I think today, just as a side note, that we're not making a whole lot of ripple as Christians anymore, you know? We're, we're pretty much, like, uh, safe to the world. My mom says this all the time, and um, she's kind of gotten used to saying it to the people. She'll, she, you say, boy, I, I'm just, I'm trying to get close to God, but man, I'm just going through this awful time. And my mom will say, yeah, you're dangerous. You're dangerous. And what she means by that is that the enemy, Satan, doesn't want these good things to happen. And if you're not doing anything, if, if your faith, the things that you're learning here, the things that God's putting on your heart, if they're not changing your life, if they're not changing the world around you, he's not going to waste his time distracting you. But if the things you're doing, I'm thinking about the Burton funeral this week. I, I anticipate, I came in here this morning thinking, man, I bet the Pedans are going to have a hard week this week. They're going to have a hard week this week because the enemy's going, man, these people are changed. These people have an impact on Bloomington and on this family and on the, well, we got to do something. <laughs> the enemy's going, I got to do something. But for those of you who feel like it's just a real easy Christian life, maybe it's because you're just not dangerous enough. The problem with Jesus 
is that the people that were following were becoming dangerous. They were becoming people who could actually make changes. Jesus changed the rules about owning stuff. You heard me say it. He just he didn't own anything. He didn't need anything. And people would be like, who can, how can this guy be king of the Jews? How can this guy be part God? He doesn't even have a car. He doesn't even have a horse. He had to borrow an old junkie colt from somebody. Jesus says, you can have everything and own nothing. In fact, Jesus says this. If you want everything, you'll give away what you got. And you go, yeah, I know what you mean, John. 10% of, no. If you're here today and you're struggling with money, you're worrying about money, I have a friend who I'm not going to embarrass that's in this room today who told me a story last week that I cried about all week. Somebody who struggles with money really deeply got a big fat check this week and gave it back to God. Could have used it to pay off everything, could have gone and bought a big screen TV, but said, nope, God's going to take care of me day in, day out. I'm going to give it back. And I said, wow, that's amazing. And he said, this is the way God works for, with us. And if I give it, then he'll just give me more. And I thought, this guy is living by faith and he's leading his family. And i got to be honest, I am honored to be a part of that. But that's not the way I live my life. He said, we got this big check. And I said, well, that'll change your life. And he looked at me like, he didn't say this, but I know his thought was, no, it won't. Money doesn't change my life. In fact, he, looked, he was a little disappointed with me. He looked, looked, looked up at the stage like, didn't you just preach about this? Money won't change my life. In fact, I'll give it back because I don't need it. In fact, the older I get, I don't want it because it leads me places and to be the kind of person that I don't want to be. I talked to my mom last week, and she came and borrowed my car which she never does. Um, she hasn't done for a long time. And she said, it's weird to say, thanks, son, for letting me borrow the car. Um, but she, you know, my dad has this big pickup truck, and she was going to this formal thing, and she didn't know how to park it, and it was all muddy and gross and, you know, like a pickup truck. So she came and borrowed my little black car, tinted windows, and it was clean. And so she came and got it, and she brought it back. And I said, you know, dad needs to, dad needs to spring for you a nice, cute little car. And she said, I don't want it. And he knows. If he got me one, I'd just give it away anyway. <laughs> And it's true. She doesn't want it. And the older she gets, the more she realizes, I'm just going to give away everything I have because it just makes me somebody I don't want to be. Now, if you're sitting here today and you're going, man, can you imagine what it would be like if I didn't have anything? I wouldn't have to worry about this. And I wouldn't have This is the picture that Jesus is painting for us. Give it away. That's what he does. He even dies without his only possession. The Roman soldiers take it. Jesus changes the rules about salvation. This is my favorite part. This is the, way, the reason this is the most important week in history. To this point in history, if you wanted to be God's people, if you've been asleep, you need to listen to this for a second. If, if you wanted to be God's people up until this point in history, up until this week, you had to be Jewish, born into it, or you had to go through a list of things. And it was a pretty substantial list. And it, so if you were a Gentile, if you weren't a Jew, and you came to somebody who was religious, somebody who was close to God, somebody who was a Jew, sometimes a priest, you would say, I want your God. I want to be accepted by your God. They would say, okay, the first thing you need to do is be circumcised. And the person would go, okay, I'll go somewhere else. <laughs> if you don't know what circumcision is, circumcision is, I'm not going to say that. Um, <laughs> ask your dad if you don't know what circumcision is. But at this point in history, you had to go through a list of things if you wanted to be God's people. 
And they, some of those things were so difficult and so hard that you really physically couldn't do them. And the religious leaders were making that list longer. And it was getting harder and harder and harder to be where God is and to be close to God and to be thought of as God's people. And so Jesus goes to the religious leaders, and he, he goes into this temple. And you t- I told you, he went to the temple for the last time. And as he went to this temple, I know that he saw the curtain in the temple. If you don't know what the curtain in the temple is, there is a curtain that was put up in these temples. And it was a huge, thick, heavy curtain. It's amazing that they ever got it to hang. It is so heavy. And this curtain would separate what was called the Holy of Holies from the rest of the world, basically. And if you were somebody who had done something wrong, you'd messed up in your life, and you, had, you felt like you needed to be close to God, you would go up to this curtain where a priest would be. And basically, God was back there. And you weren't allowed to go where God was. So you had to talk to the priest. Here's how bad it was. If, you, if the, the priest was the only one allowed back behind that curtain, and the priest, when he went back there, would tie a rope to his leg. Have you ever heard this? Would tie a rope to his leg in case he died in there. Because if he died in there, you couldn't go in to get him. You had to just listen for the thud and then pull on the rope. You'd know, i got to get the priest out of there. That's how serious they were. You don't go into the Holy of Holies. This huge, heavy, crazy curtain separated people from the Holy of Holies. And I think, I think it broke Jesus' heart. Here's what happened. Jesus changes the rules about salvation. This is why this is the most important week ever. Matthew chapter 27 verse 51 says, when Jesus died, he's laying on the cross. He has, he has and we're going to talk about that in a minute. He has died an awful death. He is laying on the cross, and at that moment, when he took his last breath, he said, it is finished, which meant so much. It is finished. And when he took it, the curtain in the temple totally tore in two. Now, hundreds of people saw this. This is not just a, a big story. The, this huge curtain that could barely be hung, that has always been there, that only the priest could go in, when Jesus died on the cross, it tore in two. And everybody around it saw the Holy of Holies. There was no longer any separation between God and people. Jesus changed the rules about salvation. If you don't believe me, this has got me in trouble preaching before, but I'll do it anyway. Jesus was on the cross, and there were two men, one on each side of him, that deserved to be there by the law. One of them was a murderer of some kind. The other one was a robber, probably, of some kind. Both of them deserved to be there. Jesus did not deserve to be there. And this one of them said, you know, if you really were the Son of God, you would get us down from here. And the other one looked at him, and he rebuked him. He said, don't talk to Jesus that way. And he looks over at Jesus, and he says, Jesus, please remember me when you come in to your kingdom. When you get to heaven, remember me. Now, if you're listening in on this and you're a Jew at the time, you go, well, that's not going to happen because first, you've got to be circumcised. Then, apparently, Jesus doing this new submersion thing where you have to be baptized too. So you've got to do some of that. And then, oh, by the way, you've got to go talk to a priest and Jesus is going, uh-uh. That, that whole holy of holy things is over. And he looks over at this guy. And this is the end of the week. This is Friday. He looks over at this guy and he says, now to us it may not seem that big a deal, but at this point in history it's the first time that a man who has been this far from God, a man who could not make any kind of those decisions that are supposed to be on the list of things you do when you become close to God, uh, 
this is the, Jesus looks at him and he goes, I tell you the truth. Now that's a way to say, listen to me, this is going to happen in your life. Today, today, you will be with me in paradise. That's why Jesus was crucified. Because Christian people, people who feel like they have a corner on God, want to keep the corner on God. And those who are far from God, those who seem to be the sinners, those who seem to be the worst, those who seem to be the ones that need to be crucified, they can't just have an easy as out as, remember me? What about the list? Jesus goes, I tore up the list. Yeah, but Jesus, what about the rules? I got a new set of rules. Jesus changes the rules about salvation. Look at this, next slide. John chapter 10 says this. Jesus, Jesus is, is talking to a big group of his people, his friends, and they're saying, how, how can anybody ever kill you? You can do things like you know, feed 5,000 people. You can create miracles. And Jesus goes, oh, don't get this wrong. If I wanted to keep people from killing me, I'd keep them. I love that. This. this is one of my favorite pieces of Scripture. It's because I give my life that I'm, I might take it back again. No one takes my life from me. I give it by myself. I have the right and the power to take it back again. And my Father has given me this right and power. Look at this, Luke chapter 23. It was dark over all the earth from noon until 3 o'clock. The sun did not shine. In the house of God, the curtain was torn in two pieces. Then Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he said this, he died. Man, please come back next week because the story gets happier. Every time I read that piece of scripture, I think of my grandfather who was on his deathbed. And there was this sense of peace that does not make sense to somebody who's dying of cancer. And he look, we looked down at him and he said, I commit my spirit. And it wasn't this like harsh, my grandpa could be harsh and he could be very stern. And it wasn't, I commit my spirit. It wasn't him trying to convince himself. It was this realization. It was more like, I commit my spirit. It was, I know what it means. I feel it. I have it. This is real. All these things I've preached, all these things I've taught, all this stuff I've done in my life, I, I have it. I commit my spirit. At his wife's funeral, he was standing over her casket. I've said this before, but you've got to hear it because I've said it all. It's one of the mantras of my life. He stood over his wife's casket, and he's looking down at her. My mom came up, put, his hand, put her hand on his back, and said, Pop, what are you thinking? And he said, I'm thinking, I either believe it or I don't. And I believe it. It's where we're at today. It's a personal offer. Just like Jesus looked over at the man on the cross, Here's the funny thing about those crosses. You know, usually we have three crosses. Or you see three crosses often a lot. Two of them are smaller and one of them is big in the middle. And they usually have something purple on them. That's royalty. Jesus didn't have, he didn't have any royalty feeling thing about him at that point except for a sign above him that was making fun of that part of him. And what's funny is that the cross itself, nobody after Jesus was crucified went over and made a cross and hung it around the neck. C.S. Lewis said, the cross only became a symbol of Jesus after everyone who had ever seen one die on a cross had died. Because it's not a good symbol for anything. 
It was so brutal. It was so awful. It was so wrong to do to another human being. And we began to use it for a symbol for Jesus. And my, the times when we, that I like it the most are when I can see all three crosses. Sometimes you'll see a cross kind of on a hill and a bigger one that we think of as Jesus in the middle and the two thieves on either side of the cross, um, the criminals. Because really they represent your choice and my choice. One of the criminals said, no, I don't buy it, I don't want it, I don't need it, I'll take care of myself. And the other one said, he didn't go through a list of things that he had to do. He just said, remember me. I choose Jesus. It's a personal offer to you today. The sacrifice that Jesus made that day was the final sacrifice. Many of you have never received it. You've never, you've never said, I choose that Jesus would remember me in heaven. I choose not only that, but I choose to live the kind of life that he set forth that leads me to a place where I can say, yes, I commit myself. I commit my life to this thing. And it changes who I am. As the band comes up today, i got a couple questions for you. And I'm just going to let God do his thing on your heart today. Today, I'd like to start by reminding you, you have a personal offer. If you grew up in a church that, um, that thinks of, of God as far away or... Um, in, a separate, in another religion that may believe you still have to go through a list of things before you can have that relationship with God. There could be this thing in you that says, but it's too easy, right? And, and there is the sense where we go, yeah, you, you, we have to go through this list, and Jesus goes, no, I changed the rules. You need to accept, and you need to believe. It's your personal offer for salvation today, but it's not just about salvation. It's not just about what happens when you die. It's about what happens when you choose to live by his new set of rules. Many of you have chosen eternity and you're going to live a life of hell on earth before you go to heaven. I don't know how else to say it. I have a, one of the preachers that I listen to the most that I want to admire wrote a sermon, wrote a whole sermon series called Jesus Wants to Save Christians. <laughs> and the whole thing is that there's a group of Christians who are living hell on earth and they don't have to because they're committed to the same things that all the rest of the people in the world who haven't received Jesus are committed to. They're committed to money. They're committed to weird relationships. They're committed to things that Jesus has said, these aren't the rules anymore. This is not the way the world works. And some of you, a lot of you, myself included today, have gone that road. And Jesus says today, I want to save you. You're going you're to spend eternity in heaven, but I want to save your life on earth. Because you're going down the road that the rest of the world goes down. I ask you, what do you believe about Jesus today? You're kicking the tires on this thing. Today's a good day to say, here's what I believe. I'll give you the chance to do that today. My, my daughter is uh, seven years old and going on 15. And I just she just graduated from first grade or whatever you do from first grade. And, um so proud of her. She's so strong. She's, well, she's a better person than I am. She's stronger. She's more truthful. And um, I see these things in her every now and then that are starting to raise up. The things, some of the things that the world has put into me. And she, she gets an attitude now, which is new in the last few months, actually. And it usually happens when she's got friends over. Um, 
She likes to show off. She likes to be the boss. And she had a sleepover. That's what she calls them this weekend. And she had two of her girlfriends and, and one of Reese's friends. And she was leading them all. And she was getting sassy and bossy. And her mom said to her, London, I need you to clean up and come upstairs. And she looked up the stairs and she goes, not right now. Which is a lot like Reese, but not a lot like London. And it gave me to a screeching halt, that little kind of a feeling. And I looked down the stairs and she knew she had made a mistake. She looked up at me and I looked down at her and I pointed at her and I said, who do you think you are? Because it happens to us, doesn't it, in life? We forget that we're not in charge. We think we're running things. We think we got the corner on peace and hope and joy, when truthfully, we're a mess. Today I'm going to ask you, and I'm going to point at you, who do you think you are? And you can walk out of here and go, I'm in charge. And I'll see you at the bar that's where you're going to get your hope. I'll see another broken relationship because that's where you think it's going to come from. I'll see another big truck parked in your yard with another price sticker on it because that's where you think the peace is going to come from. But I'm telling you what this morning, if you can answer this question, who do you think you are, by saying, I am forgiven. I am broken. I am bought with a price. My life is not my own. And if I want freedom, I will become a slave to the one who gave me that hope. You believe it or not today, my grandpa would say, you either believe it or you don't. And I believe it. I'm going to ask you to stand up today just between you and Jesus. It's just between you and God this morning. I'm going to go right back to that corner if you want to pray with me, but this is just between you and God. I'm going to ask you, who do you think you are this morning? Would you stand with us and sing?